I want to invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter 13. I have been waiting uh, three weeks now to get to this text and get to preach this sermon. As many of you know, I was out for a couple of weeks with my family. We had some sickness going through the house, but um, I am so excited to be here and get to worship in this building that God has provided for us. Uh, my heart is just warmed this morning and thankful to see all of you and thankful for all that God is doing in this church. And today we get to come to an amazing text here in Exodus 13 and going into Exodus 14. And it is a story that is really one of the highlights of the entire Exodus. It's the parting of the Red Sea. It's the deliverance of Israel from a great threat. And it is the stunning defeat of Egypt's army. Now this moment in the book of Exodus is a climactic one that has fascinated people for ages. It's a scene, if you can imagine it, I'm sure you've seen representations of this. This scene of the, the waters parting is one that draws in filmmakers, it draws in historians, it draws in archaeologists and students of scripture alike. Everyone is fascinated by this account. But I want you to understand that this is more than just a standalone story. It is really a crucial moment for the history of the nation Israel. And it's an event that is referred to no less than 25 times throughout the rest of the Old Testament. It's an event that really shaped their national understanding of who God is. They remembered the Red Sea. And it, re and it reminds them of God's power and God's purposes. And this story has profound theological significance for us today. The story is a familiar one. I'm sure many of you know this story. The nation of Israel leaves the land of Egypt and they take this surprising route. And they find themselves stuck at somewhat of a dead end. They are stuck at the shores of the Red Sea. And Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, predictably, has a change of heart, doesn't he? He changes his mind and he marshals his army to go recapture his slaves. The people of Israel backed up against the Red Sea. I want you to put yourselves in their sandals for a moment. They felt vulnerable. They felt helpless. They were threatened. What was going on? Why was God leading them here? Maybe you can relate. When we look around us today at all the things going on in our world, we have a contested presidential election. We have nine months and counting of COVID-19 with no seeming end in sight and no shortage of conflict over the science and over the government's response and over what everyone should be doing. And in the midst of all of this, we are watching a culture around us that is rapidly changing. It's becoming more and more hostile to biblical Christianity. So what a practical text to be in this week. This story is here, friends, to remind us that God chooses times like these to show his power, to get glory for his name, and to prove his faithfulness, and also to produce a profound change in the hearts of his people. So what I want to do is walk through this story this morning and then draw out just a few practical encouragements for us today. And before we do, I'm going to ask you to pray with me as we approach God's word. Heavenly Father, we come expectantly this morning. We believe that your word is true and that it is powerful and that it is for us. 
We believe, Lord, that your Holy Spirit is present with us today to powerfully illuminate the scriptures and apply them to our hearts. Lord, we long for your name to be glorified. We long for your purposes to be furthered in and through this church. And so we ask, God, that you would take your truth today and apply it not only to our minds but to our hearts that we might live for your name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Exodus chapter 13, we're going to start in verse 17 today, and and as I said, walk through this story. And at the end of chapter 13 here, what we find is that God goes with his people. He goes with his people. Look in verse 17. It says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds, and when they see war, and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness, and the Lord went before them, by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people." If you've been with us in our study of Exodus, this will make sense to you, but really the first 13 chapters of Exodus, the people are in Egypt. And remember, they're being afflicted and they are crying out to God. And the first 13 chapters are the story of God coming to his people. He comes to them. He hears their cry of affliction in Egypt and he visits them with his powerful presence. And this is manifested in the plagues. But now, here at the end of chapter 13 and moving forward, this is now the story of God not coming to his people, but God going with his people. There's a shift here, and this is really amazing, that God leads them with his presence. His leading of his people is, first of all, marked by great divine wisdom. We see here in in verses 17 through 18 that God leads them not in the way that you might have anticipated, You see, God knows that even though the direct route to the land of Canaan, which would have gone north and along the shore of the Mediterranean Sea, he knows that that two-week route only would have taken them two weeks. God knew there would be military opposition. It was heavily populated. It was heavily fortified. There were military troops stationed there, not only Egyptian, but Philistines and others. And these people, as excited as they were to leave Egypt at that moment, God knows in his wisdom, they're not ready for that. They wouldn't be able to handle that. God knows best what they need. And what they need at this point is not to go fight a battle, as we will soon see. They're going to wilt at the first sign of danger. So God doesn't lead them that way. His leading of his people is marked by divine wisdom. But it's also very personal. His leading of his people is personal. Notice he's present with them. Moses describes this pillar of fire that lights up the night. And during the daytime, it looks like this pillar of smoke or a cloud. And this is the manifestation of the presence of God. 
Remember back in the book of Genesis, Abraham saw this burning smoke, this torch that that came down and passed between the pieces of the sacrifice to ratify his covenant with Abraham. That was the presence of God. Remember, Moses had seen a bush, and the bush was burning. There was fire. So this is this theme that God's glory is often manifested as fire and smoke. And it shows itself once again here. And we'll see it again later in Exodus. This same glory of God, his personal presence, would be manifested at the top of the mountain. Mount Sinai would be covered with smoke. Flashes of lightning. The presence of God. Later, this presence of God would fill the tabernacle itself. But for now, God is leading his people. He's going with them, going before them every step of the way. And this visible presence of God in their midst is a fulfillment of God's promise to be with them. He is with them. It's a provision for them. It gives them light in the nighttime. It gives them shade in the daytime. It gives them direction all the time. And as we'll see, the presence of God will also be their protection. Imagine, for these Israelites, all day, every day, they knew God was with them and knew God was leading them. They could see it. It was there. Now, the text notes that in verse 18 that they are marching out in an organized fashion. The ESV translates this equipped for battle, which I don't think is is probably best here. Um, Really, this is not, the words that are used here are not referring to people who are carrying weapons. So don't think of them wearing armor or carrying swords necessarily. The NIV translates this, that they are ready for battle. And the NASB is even better. It says that they are in martial array. They have no weapons at this point. These are untrained people, but they are described here as marching out in organized formation as an army. And you might say, why is this important? Why this detail? Well, remember that these people had just plundered the Egyptians. That's a military term, military language. So they're being described here as departing victors. But there's also another major conflict that's right around the corner, isn't there? Little do they know, but they're about to go head-to-head with the armies of Egypt. And this language is meant to anticipate that battle and even to frame what happens next as a battle. It's getting us in the military mindset here. What this shows us is that um, leaving Egypt did not mark the end of difficulty and testing for Israel. They might have thought they were home free. They're out of Egypt. They're free now, right? Everything's going to be downhill But their departure was only the beginning of an arduous journey. It was going to be a demanding pilgrimage. And much was to happen before they reached the promised land. But there's another important detail here that I love. And it's about the bones of Joseph. And this might seem random to you if you haven't read through the book of Genesis. But this detail is here. That they carry the bones of Joseph. To remind us that the God who is leading them out is a God who has made great and precious promises to these people. Promises that go back hundreds of years to the patriarchs. Promises that go all the way back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's 12 sons. Joseph was the reason that they had ended up in Egypt, but on his deathbed there at the end of Genesis, he made his children and his fellow Hebrews promise him something. It says, promise me that you will take my bones with you when God leads you out of this place, when he takes us back home to Canaan, to the place that we belong. 
Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22 says, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. This is here to remind us that faith in God's promise is at the center of what's going on here in the exodus. You see, Joseph knew this promise. He knew that God was going to make them a great nation, that God was going to bring them into Canaan, that God was going to bless them and bless all the earth through them. Joseph knew that Egypt was not their home. So as they march out, they take the bones with them, bones that are 400 years old. These are ancient promises being rehearsed, being believed. Because God is now doing what he said he would do. The God of promise is the God of fulfillment. So the people here are excited. They're marching out in organized fashion. They have the bones of Joseph with them because they believe the promise and they know they're headed to the promised land. So they're really starting off on the right foot. But very soon, things take a surprising turn. God is going with his people. That's what we see at the end of chapter 13. But in verses 1 through 18 of the next chapter, chapter 14, we find a people in crisis. This crisis begins with a somewhat surprising route, more surprising changes to their route. Verses 1 through 4, God says, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So God sovereignly continues to direct his people. And it's a rather surprising route because the people actually double back. They retrace their steps and they turn towards the Red Sea. Now remember, God is the one directing this. He is sovereign and he has his reasons. This route, this confusing route that looks like they're doubling back, are they lost, are they confused? It's going to get the attention of Pharaoh. And God tells Moses that Pharaoh is not going to be able to resist this dangling bait. Uh, when I was a kid, I have a bunch of brothers, and we loved to fish. And we were watching Saturday morning TV or something, and this infomercial came on. I don't know if any of you guys are fishermen, if you remember this. But it was called the Banjo Fishing Lure. I don't know if any of you guys have ever heard of that. But it's a rubber plastic bait, and the way you rig it and the way you fish it, it looks like a fluttering, dying fish, like a little minnow. And a largemouth bass, which is what we like to catch, cannot resist eating, even if he's not hungry, because those, those movements of a dying fish triggers these sensations in that fish's brain that says, easy meal, I won't have to expend much energy, and this thing's about to die, oh, that's lunch. And we caught a lot of fish on those banjo. We, we pooled our money together. We called the 1-800 number. My parents said, fine, you can do it. It's, it's just a rubber worm. It's nothing special. But we thought we had to have the banjo fishing lure. But anyway, so we bought the banjo fishing lure. We did catch fish on that lure. But the, the, the trick to fishing that lure is it looks like a dying fish, and the predator can't resist. And I think that's kind of what's going on here. Pharaoh sits back. He sees them wandering around. They're, they're sort of fluttering. They're, they seem to be lost. They seem to, to be in between. They, they seem to be indecisive. And so he assumes that they're either disoriented, but they're, they must be in a position of weakness. 
And God tells Moses, listen, Pharaoh is going to pursue you. And this is unsurprising to us because of what we know of this man's character. Pharaoh was proud, immensely proud. And any repentance he may have shown in the past was false. It was temporary. It was shallow. It was counterfeit repentance. We know Pharaoh's the type of man to change his mind. But ultimately, we also know that God is the one who's hardening his heart. God is sovereign over the wandering in the wilderness, and he's also sovereign over this pagan king. And he has a reason for why he wants them to double back. He has a reason for why he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart to come after them. And it's this, that God is going to get glory. Verse 4, he says, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. God is informing Moses here of what's going to happen, and he's telling him why it's going to happen. God is sovereignly arranging this final showdown with Pharaoh, a final humiliation of Egypt, her king, and her gods. So exactly what God said would happen is what happens. We find this in verses 5 through 9. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over All of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. By the way, that's exactly where God told his people to camp, and that's exactly where Pharaoh comes to meet them. Pharaoh regrets losing his workforce. And he also regrets now that there's this large group of people that potentially might join with his enemies and pose to be a future threat. Now, you might ask, why would Pharaoh take such action after these devastating plagues? I mean, there's a reason he let the people go. All those manifestations of power, God wrecked their economy. He killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. So why would he chase after them? The text tells us it's because he has a hard heart. This is the insanity of pride. This is the foolishness of unbelief, what it looks like when people have a hard heart towards God. If you want to climb into his mind, how did he rationalize this? Well, I think it's very possible that Pharaoh thought God has left them. That God had abandoned them. That he had forgotten them. You see, the pagan gods were fickle. They were capricious. And they were often limited to certain locations. Now that Israel had left Goshen, perhaps this God is not going to help them anymore. Maybe they did something to make this God angry, and now he's turned his back on them. So this hard-hearted, arrogant king, he gets his army moving, thinking he's going to go take these people back. And... He takes chariots. Now, chariots were the premier warfare technology of the day. That was the best weapons you could have. And they were a fearsome weapon, an impressive status symbol. Pharaoh sends 600 of his best chariots, along with an untold number of just his regular chariots. So this is a highly mobile, highly trained, powerfully equipped army. 
that is coming after a nation of bricklayers. People who are walking along with their elderly parents and their young children, carrying all all of their belongings with them. If there's going to be a military battle, the odds seem hopelessly lopsided. And Israel doesn't stand a chance. And that's exactly what God wants right now. But how do the people respond to this? Chapter, Chapter 14, verses 10 through 12 shows us they have a fearful response, one of unbelief. When Pharaoh drew near, verse 10, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to God. They said to Moses, who is the representative of God, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. What a change of heart for these people. Verse 8 tells us that they had been marching out defiantly. But now we find them wringing their hands in fear on the shores of the Dead Sea. And they're saying, why, God? What are you doing, God? What is going to happen, God? Their complaint here is bitterly ironic. They say, are there no graves in Egypt that we had to come die out here? Now remember, Egypt is filled with graves, with tombs, with pyramids, and they've been building them. This is a cutting remark. This is bitter unbelief. But they even go further. They say, it would have been better for us to stay there and serve the Egyptians. Now, this word serve is very important. It's a theme throughout this story. Remember, God had said, let my people go. Why? That they might serve me. And now they're saying it would be better to serve the Egyptians. God had called them to serve him, to worship him. And he is a God of gracious promises, a God of blessing, a God who is going to provide and lead and protect. The Egyptians were cruel taskmasters who afflicted them. They say it would be better to serve them. They say it would be better to serve the Egyptians, even though God was the one not only who was gracious to them, but who had a far superior power. Remember, God has just soundly humiliated Egypt and their gods, and yet they want to go serve Egypt. As Kent Hughes points out, this is more than a lack of nerve. This is a lack of faith. Psalm 106.7 condemns it as unbelief. says, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. These people had so quickly forgotten God's power. They'd forgotten his salvation by a strong hand. Earlier in chapter 13, four different times it says they are to do the Feast of Unleavened Bread and and perform the Passover so that they might remember how God brought them out with a strong hand, with a strong hand, with a strong hand, with a strong hand. But here they are afraid. They'd forgotten. They had so quickly forgotten God's promise. They forgot about the bones that were parked over there the bones of Joseph. They forgot about God's promise to bring them out of slavery and into the land of Canaan. And they forgot about God's purpose, that God wanted to bring them to the mountain that they might worship. 
You see, it wasn't just Pharaoh who didn't learn the lesson of the ten plagues, was it? No, Israel didn't learn. And what it shows us here is that these people didn't believe that God would save them. They didn't believe it. Despite the pillar of flame and this this cloud, they assumed they were on their own. They assumed that they were doomed to be crushed by Pharaoh's impressive army. It's easy for us to condemn them, but this is a very human response, isn't it? We often assume that, well, God would never want me to be in a difficult circumstance. If God is all-powerful and if God is all-good, then no bad things should happen to me, right? So when crisis arises, we are tempted to start thinking that God must not be in control or that God's promises have failed or that maybe God doesn't know what's really best for me. And we forget God's promises. We doubt his wisdom. We take for granted his very presence with us. And we succumb to fear and unbelief. But this approaching army is not only a threat to their immediate safety. Even more importantly, this approaching army is a threat to the purpose of God, isn't it? It's a threat to God's purpose to bring them to the mountain so they might worship. It's a threat to God's promise that he would bring them into the land, which means, get this, that the armies of Egypt are not just marching against Israel. No, they are marching against God. And it's not just Hebrew lives that are at stake. The glory of God is at stake. And they really pose no threat to him. Now Moses knows this. Unlike the people, Moses believes the promise. He knows the power of God. He knows God is present with them. And he believes the word of the Lord. Remember what God had told him in verse 4. God said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. Check. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And Moses says, I know that that is going to happen. And so he speaks to these frightened and unbelieving people. Verses 13 and 14. And I love what he says. Moses said to the people, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. Moses comes out of the gate swinging here and he says, fear not, do not be afraid. And this is in the Hebrew text, a strong and negative imperative. Moses isn't trying to comfort them. He's not coddling them. He's not saying, hey guys, don't be scared. It's okay. No, this is a rebuke. He is denouncing their unbelief. He's telling them, listen, you have no right to be afraid. You have no excuse for claiming that you would be better off in Egypt. Stop being afraid. He tells them in the positive sense, he says, stand firm and see. Stand firm and see. He's trying to put strength into their wobbly knees, trying to put steel into their spine. He says, stand firm, watch this, watch what God is about to do. He can say this because he knows that God is going to fight this battle. This is so hard for us, isn't it, to stand firm, to be silent, and to simply wait on the Lord because we want to run. We want to fix things. We want to take control and do it ourselves. It's hard to wait on the Lord. Fear 
makes it impossible to wait on the Lord. It actually requires faith. And Moses here is calling these people, these doubtful people, these fearful people, he's calling them to believe. Although the army of Egypt is coming, although there are chariots and horsemen, he doesn't deny any of that. He says, listen, you're not going to fight, God is. This is God's battle. And their part is to simply stand by and behold the display of God's glory. Because it's not Egypt versus Israel. It's Egypt versus God. And it won't even be close. Following Moses' speech, now God speaks to the people through Moses. Verses 15 through 18. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. So the people have already been rebuked by Moses. Now they're rebuked by God. He says, why do you cry to me? He rebukes them for whimpering. Instead of crying out to God and wringing their hands, he says, listen, what I want you to be doing right now is marching forward. And this might raise a question in our minds. Does this mean God doesn't want them to pray? Does it mean he doesn't want us to pray when we face danger? Well, I want you to listen to these wise comments by Charles Spurgeon, a faithful pastor. He writes, Beloved, there are times when prayer is not enough, when prayer itself is out of season. When we have prayed over a matter to a certain degree, it then becomes sinful to tarry any longer. Our plain duty is to carry our desires into action. And having asked God's guidance and having received divine power from on high, to go at once to our duty without any longer deliberation or delay. You see, sometimes the most spiritual and faith-filled thing we can do is to stop murmuring our doubts and our insecurities to God and to stand up, to step out in faith and expect God to do what he has already told us he is going to do. Not to sit there begging him and asking him for things that he's already guaranteed us. So God gives Moses these directions. He says, lift up your staff, Moses, and part the sea. This will be the deliverance of Israel, and it will be the destruction of the armies of Egypt. And when this is all over, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Now we come to God's mighty works. The talking is now over. Now the action begins. God, my, God's mighty works are first of all seen in his protection of his people. Verses 19 through 20 says, The angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. These are not two separate things. This is two, description, uh, two descriptions of one event. The presence of God now standing between the armies, of Is, uh, the armies of Egypt and the people of Israel. What was light for Israel now becomes darkness for the Egyptians. Just as what will be salvation for Israel will be judgment for the Egyptians. So no longer is the presence of God simply their guide. He is now actively protecting them. He's already starting to deliver them 
from the Egyptians. And then comes the famous scene where the waters part. Verse 21 through 23, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. This is no tide change. This is no marshy place that dried up overnight because of the wind. There are walls of water on the left hand and on the right. And the Egyptians pursued them and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Friends, there is no natural explanation for this. This is nothing short of a supernatural miracle. A divine work of God. The laws of nature bow to the supreme ruler of the universe. Water and air and dirt obeys its maker. And God parts the sea. He tells the water to stand up. He tells the wind to blow. He tells the dirt to dry out. And it all says, yes, Lord. And an amazed nation, I mean, imagine this, they walk through on dry land through the night with walls of water on both sides. And then this doomed army follows in behind them. And then we see God fighting against Egypt, just as he said he would. Moses had told the people that the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. And it happens. It says, verse 24, in the morning watch, so this is really early in the morning, it's still dark out, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces. And I, I, I'll just have to stop there. I love this. God's looking down at the most premier fighting force in the world at this time. With 600 choice chariots and a bunch of the regular chariots following behind. And God kind of looks down. Okay, and what does he do? He threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. You see, the Egyptians thought they had Israel trapped. But on the contrary, God had the Egyptians trapped. They're now out in the middle of the sea and God throws them into this panic. The Lord fights for them. Psalm 77 describes this, starting in verse 16. The psalmist writes, When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. I think what's happening here is the Egyptians are in the middle of the sea is that there's earthquake, there's lightning, there's thunder, there's a downpour of rain. God is fighting against them. Once again, the very elements of nature obey their maker. And this is a terrible turn of events for the Egyptians. Their, their wheels get clogged. The, the wheels are literally starting to fall off, okay? So what this means is that what was once their greatest strength, these chariots, this military power, now becomes their downfall. 
And then comes the final blow in verses 26 through 29. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and their left. If you remember, one of the plagues was a swarm of locusts. And these locusts, when Moses prayed, God brought up this wind and swept all of these locusts into the sea. And now God does the same thing to all of these soldiers, these chariots and these horses. He sweeps them all into the sea. And I love that he does this, according to verse 27, at daybreak when the morning appeared. Why is that? Why doesn't this happen in the night when it's dark? I think it's so that Israel can see. Remember Moses had said, stand firm and see what God is going to do. And as the sun rises, Moses stretches out his hand with the staff of God in it. This is the visible symbol of God's authority And the people see the salvation of God as the waters collapse onto the fleeing Egyptians and they are crushed. They are crushed. Now this not only only produces a devastating defeat for Egypt, but it also produces a profound change in the hearts of the Israelites. I love this. Verse 30 and 31, it says, The Lord saved Israel. This is a summary statement. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians... And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw, once again, the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. And get this, they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. The people saw, they feared, and they believed. These people who had formerly been afraid... These people who had been complaining, these people who had regretted ever leaving Egypt, notice the change that has taken place. They were one way on the western shores of the Red Sea, but on the eastern shores, something has changed. Now, instead of fearing the Egyptians, they fear God. This fear is a response of submission and humility and trust and loyalty. And and listen, this is what God wanted This is what was the intended effect of God getting glory over Pharaoh so that people would fear him, so they would believe in him. This is a crucial lesson for these people that salvation depends on God. And our role is simply to trust him. There's a huge change between the nation standing on one side and the nation standing on the other side when morning breaks. There's been a heart change, a change from fear to faith. The retelling of God's great and mighty works in stories like this, the recalling of God's glorious victory. Friends, this is a summons. It is a call to believe. To believe. This is a call for faith. It is a clear exhortation to all who hear to stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. You know, there's actually a greater exodus than this exodus that is taking place. God is today rescuing a people for his namesake from the power of sin and death, from slavery. 
And apart from Christ, apart from the salvation God provides through him, we are actually doomed and in a worse situation than the children of Israel were. We're in greater danger than they were, backed up against the Red Sea with an army of chariots coming towards them because we're in danger of the wrath of God. Our only hope is the miraculous power of God to save us. Our only hope is to be silent and to stand firm and to see, to look to Christ and to trust in him to perform what is needed for our salvation. And Christ has. He has done it. Just as Moses led the people through the waters to freedom, so our deliverer, Jesus Christ, leads us through the waters of death itself. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and he now invites us to follow, to trust in him by faith. So I have to ask you this morning, which side of the Red Sea are you standing on? On the side that is still in danger? The side of fear, the side of unbelief, the side that doesn't trust God's promises and thinks that somehow we have to take care of it? Or are you standing on the other side, fearing God and nothing else, trusting him, believing in him? Where do you stand today? Friends, there's only one way to salvation, and it's through Jesus Christ. If you don't know him today, believe, believe. Believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again and that it is only through faith in his promise that you can be forgiven of your sins and reconciled with God. Only the power of God can part the Red Sea and only the power of God can change your sinful heart and make you alive and make you new. So believe, believe in him. For those of us who do believe, what does faith look like in the face of of impossibilities. What should our faith look like when we face opposition and danger? Just three uh, brief encouragements I want to share with you this morning. First of all, I want to exhort you today, trust where God leads. Trust where God leads. If God has saved us, if he has brought us out of slavery to sin, if we've had our own Passover moment where the blood has been shed and we've been redeemed out of slavery, that means that we are now free today. But we often crave security, don't we? We often fear conflict. And you may be tempted in the face of very real danger to turn back, just like the Israelites were. But we must trust that where God leads us and what he leads us into, that he has his reasons, that he, that he is sovereign and he is wise and he has good purposes, we can trust where God leads us. Uncertainty, though, makes it hard to trust. We like to know what's going to happen. Real danger makes it hard to trust. So the threats are real. They are. And it also makes it hard to trust the Lord when the people around us are panicking. I don't have to convince you that fear is far more contagious than COVID-19. And it makes it hard sometimes to trust where God is leading us. But friends, we must trust God because he leads us in perfect wisdom. His plan is always best. He knows, he is not surprised, he makes no mistakes. We can trust his sovereign plan for our lives and we can trust his directions from scripture. He guides us by his spirit and through his word. We can and we must trust him. So trust where he leads. But secondly, I want to exhort you this morning to remember his presence with us. 
Remember that God is with us. And if God is with us, we need not despair no matter how grim the circumstances may be. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And that's not just an Old Testament promise. Jesus himself in Matthew 28, 20 says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Paul's logic in Romans is this. If God is for us, then who can be against us? The New Testament tells us, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And we could keep going. We could keep going to see the promises of God that he will be with us and that he is for us. And this is huge because it means that viruses and governments and cultures and whatever else you fill in the blank, they may seem to all be against us, but God is for us. And he's not just for us, he is with us. You see that pillar of cloud, that pillar of fire, later would descend on the tabernacle. But in the New Testament, the people of God are the dwelling place of God. We are living stones that are built together into a temple, and the Holy Spirit dwells in us. At Pentecost, there was a sound of rushing wind, and you know what they saw? They saw fire, little flames of fire, tongues of fire, as it were, above the heads of the people gathered, symbolizing what? God's presence with them, the Holy Spirit indwelling each and every believer. God's presence, his indwelling, is ours. So stop being afraid because God is near. God is here. He is with us and he is for us. And then third, I want to challenge you this morning to hope in God's promise. So trust where he leads. Remember his presence and hope in his promise. When we wring our hands in fear, when we look over our shoulder with regret, when we look longingly on the world, friends, this is unbelief. We are to hope in God's promises to us. Now, I want to clarify this. That doesn't mean that God is going to do everything you want him to do. It doesn't mean you won't lose your job. It doesn't mean you won't lose relationships. It doesn't mean we might not have to bury some people. Keep in mind what God's ultimate purpose is. His ultimate purpose is his glory. He was going to get glory over Egypt so that everyone would know that he is the Lord. So that's why God did this. Now, he could have made his glory known in a number of ways. But he chose to do it by rescuing these people. Why? It's because God had made a promise. He had made a specific promise. He had promised to rescue them, to deliver them, to bring them out into the land and make them a great nation and bless all the world through them. There was a promise on the table. But friends, we have no right to expect God to do things for us that he has not promised. It'd be really easy to preach this passage and say, whatever you're facing, God can make a way. And yes, he can. That doesn't mean he will. Unless it has something to do with one of his promises. And then, if God's promise is on the table, you can take it to the bank. But we cannot simply expect God to do things for us that he has not promised. That is not faith. That is presumption. But we have every right to claim God's promises and tenaciously cling to them. So let me ask, what has God promised us? Well, he's not promised us peaceful elections. 
He's not promised us um, the preservation of Christian values in Western culture. He's not promised us that we'll never face persecution or adversity. But here's what he has promised. He has promised to preserve us. Jesus says, no one can take them out of my hand. He has promised to build his church. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He has promised to meet our needs, to empower us for service, to keep us to the end. He has promised to return and establish his kingdom and to bring perfect justice to bear and to bring reward for his children who have endured to the end. This is God's unchanging promise. And these promises are our hope. Not escape from painful circumstances, but the fulfillment of God's promise. So here's our duty, is to believe these promises. Take the bones with you, as it were. Remember what God has said and go out expecting him to do exactly what he has said he will do. Danger is reality. We're never told that we will be spared from opposition or difficulty or threats. But in the face of such challenges, listen, church, we must never forget who is with us, who it is who leads us, whose promises we are protected by, and whose power we are dependent on. You know, sometimes feeling helpless means that we are exactly where God wants us to be because it is then that we look to him. It is then that we have the opportunity to stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. We have only to be silent and to trust him and to wait on him. God, as we read these amazing stories, we believe that they are true. And we believe that you are the same God today that you were on that day when the sun rose and the Red Sea collapsed upon a fleeing army. Lord, your power is no less. Your promises are no less. And Lord, our need is no less than those people's need. Their need was to see you and to believe. Lord, that is our need. I pray that today as your word has been read that people would see and that they would believe. Lord, take away the fear from this church. Strengthen our faith. Help us to remember, Lord, that you are with us. Help us to trust that where you lead us, you have good reasons for. You are sovereign and wise. Help us, Lord, to remember that you're with us and to hope in your promise. We pray that you would produce the same change in our hearts that you produced in those people's hearts. Move us from fear to faith, from doubt to confidence, from concern for our own safety to awe-filled worship of you. For you are worthy. You have made your glory known. We thank you, Lord, that you have made it known to us. Amen.